We'll open your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 14. And in God's providence, we, we have arrived at the end of the Lord's preparation for the cross. You remember, if you've been with us, we have been looking at all of the, the different individuals and the characters that, that play a part in the on-ramp to the cross. And we finished that up last week in looking at Jesus' prediction uh, to Peter of his denial, really a prophecy. And right now, this morning, is, as far as the calendar goes, as, as has already been mentioned, we, 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 we begin what's called Passion Week. And, and we also begin the, the march in, uh, toward the cross. Here's, you might think of it this way. Um, we stand looking uh, over the edge of the abyss, uh, which is the, the crucifixion. Now, it's one thing to be at the very bottom of the hill and look up and say, wow, that is a really long climb. I've got a long way to get from the bottom to the top. We're not even at the bottom yet. We're standing at the edge looking down into the, into the hole, into the, the, the hill we have to walk down. And then when we get to the bottom of the hill, that's, that's the cross. And then we'll come back up out the other side, which is the resurrection. And yet this is a hill, this is a, this is a, 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 an abyss that, that you and, and me have no idea how, how to get out of. We, we could not walk what the Lord walked and we'll see this morning. Today in our passage, Jesus will utter the words, it is enough. It's, it's complete. It's, the hour has come and the, the hour he speaks of is his crucifixion where he'll bear God's wrath for, for sinners. He'll enter the Garden of Gethsemane, and he'll submit his will to the fathers, and he'll teach the disciples something about their wills. As it relates to the to the Lord's passion, you you, you might think of the Garden of Gethsemane like the effects of the of a hurricane when it first makes landfall. The the wind and waves of divine wrath begin to whip upon the soul of the Lord. And there is more to, to come. Jesus knows what is coming. He knows what it's about. He, he knows what He'll endure. He also knows what He'll accomplish. But that's in front of Him, not behind Him. And He's about to face it. And that's what this scene is, is about. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prepares Himself and the disciples for fulfilling Isaiah 53. In fact, it's, it's already it's already begun its fulfillment. And in the garden, Jesus fully embraces that the one who knew no sin would be made sin for us. His humanity needed the, the strength of the Spirit. His deity, his deity needed nothing. And he, and he walks right toward sin's wrath. If you want to understand um, the garden, you, you have to understand the seriousness of sin. And that's, that's very difficult for us to do. You can see that the way the Lord agonizes over, over avoiding it. We don't realize how serious sin is because we're not perfectly holy like the Lord was. We reduce it to big things like killing or stealing or, 
or these, these things that, that we would never do, but somebody else that we can point to does, and therefore we're not as bad as they are. That's what, the way we typically deal with sin. We diminish it by saying things like, well, nobody's perfect. Well, there was one who was, who was perfect, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, without holiness, without perfection, you'll not see the Lord. And so, no, there is no human being that's perfect, but you need perfection to enter into heaven. And so you and I have a massive problem. We need righteousness and perfection in order to enter into heaven, and none of us have righteousness or perfection, which is the whole point of Christ, the righteous one coming. But then he also pays for the unrighteousness that we have committed. We don't understand because we fail to grasp who we sin against. He's the infinite, perfect God who has never been touched by sin in His existence. And yet, that's going to change today. Jesus knew who God was because He was God. He knew how terrible sin was and terrifying its punishment should be because He's omniscient. But today He's going to walk right into the teeth of it. And the garden is where those teeth are first shown. And our Lord's going to face this hour of crisis alone. And so he turns to the Father and the disciples for needed strength, and they face their own crisis. They'll fail to recognize that until it's too late. Jesus will not fail, and he even instructs them right up to the final moments of his, of his betrayal and their denial. And Mark's been showing us these characters, and he's been preparing us through these last two scenes about the disciples' overconfidence and what they would do whenever they were tested and and Jesus has already prayed that they'd be preserved, and He, he tells them that they'll fall away, and you remember they state boldly that, they'll, that they won't, and, and now comes the test, and we're going to see who's right and who will, who will be faithful. This passage is in Mark is purposely, the garden is purposely located between Jesus' prophecy of their denial and its fulfillment whenever they all scatter, and it's purposely located between their, the, the, the prediction of their denial and their, their denial because Jesus never denies anything. I mean, in one sense, these verses are holy ground. Um, they're meant for us to read. They're meant for me to preach. They're meant for us to understand. But I confess to you, I enter them with fear and trepidation. Whenever I, when I begin to see what the Lord suffered and what He went through. These are not trivial passages. These are not feel-good passages. If you want to celebrate what Jesus has done, come next Sunday. Because these aren't celebratory passages to begin with. These are dark, heavy passages because they're the Lord wrestling with being made sin and divine wrath that is about to come upon Him. There are ten verses here. And you see two testings, two tests, if you will, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Two testings playing out. And the first is that we'll look at is the disciples' lesson. There isn't a specific passage because it's, it's woven through this verses 32 through 42. There's about three places that we'll look at. And then there's the Lord's mastery of the test. You'll, you'll see that at the very end. I'll, I will show you. Let's look at the, the disciples' 
lesson. Look, if you would, at verse 32. It says, They came to a place named Gethsemane. And he said to the disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. It's the place that's very familiar to the Lord. We, we talked the last time about coming out of the walled city for the Passover meal, and he comes across the Kedron Valley, goes back onto the Mount of Olives, and now is a specific place that, that is, that, that's known. It's a very familiar place. It's probably where they've gone every night. And to remind you how in control the Lord is of everything, he, you remember he hid the location of the Passover from Judas so he couldn't be betrayed early, and now he intentionally goes to this very familiar place so he'll be found. But before Judas comes, he prays. We're not told whose garden it is, but it's a private garden. It's, it's probably somebody who believes in the Lord, but it's named. It's, the, it's Gethsemane which means oil press. And just like if you had a vineyard and you had a wine press, you would put that vineyard very close to the grapes so you didn't have to carry the clusters far in order to process them. There are also oil presses in, in olive groves. And the Mount of Olives was full of olive trees and, and they're pressed for the harvest in this location. And so Jesus takes His disciples there and He begins to pray. This is the third time in Mark where Jesus separates from the disciples to pray. In Mark chapter 1, verse 35, he, it's early in the morning, it's still dark. Jesus got up, He left the house, and He went to a secluded place, and He was praying there. And then in Mark 6, 46, He left for the mountain to pray, and then in here, He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray and to wait for what is what He knows is coming. In all three cases, Jesus goes off alone, and He's aware of Satan's work. And yet, when he goes off here, he doesn't go entirely by himself first. He separates Peter, James, and John from the rest of the disciples. Look, if you would, at verse 33. He tells the disciples to sit here until I've prayed, and he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be very distressed and troubled. And verse 34, and following, is speaking directly to him. Now, apart from the cross, no greater agony has ever been experienced by anyone who's ever lived in what we're getting ready to read here. No man has ever suffered this way. The sorrow of Jesus is so massive, the conflict is so immense that it comes close to killing him. He's under such agony that that blood is mingled with his sweat, comes from his pores. And the disciples are not ready for this. And so he separates three of the men from the other, the other eight, and he does that for, for two reasons. For their pride and the purpose that he has for them. These three men in particular had affirmed that they would go with Jesus all the way. The rest of them nodded their head. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll, we'll not deny you. But these three men have specifically said, they have made affirmation declaration that they'll not deny the Lord. We'll go with you all the way. Peter has just said that in verse 29 and 31. I will not fall away. After Jesus says, you'll all fall away. Peter says, I will not fall away. And he says over and over in verse 31, if I have to die, I will go with you. That's Peter. And you remember James and John back in Mark chapter 10 when they're arguing about, they come to Jesus and ask Jesus in particular, can I sit at your right hand and at your left, their mother is involved in that. 
you remember what Jesus says to James and John? Are you able to drink the cup that, that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism? And you remember what they say? Yes. Yes, we can drink the cup. Yes, we can be baptized with your baptism. They all three made emphatic assertions based solely on their wills. And they sounded very confident when they did it. They're very motivating. The other disciples go, yeah, 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 what Peter said. And when James and John say, yes, we can drink the cup, the others are angry at them because they seem like they're able to do it. And maybe the Lord will answer. Maybe the Lord will give Peter or give James and John what he's asking for. It's like a soldier in a battle who, who rallies the troop to the enemy's charge. I, I, I greatly enjoy the movie The Patriot. The very end of the movie when, when all the troops are, are running and the, the British are charging and, and the, uh, whatever the guy's name is, the Passion of the Christ guy, he picks up the, Mel Gibson, he picks up the, picks up the flag and he runs in the opposite direction and he starts waving the flag and everybody sees it and they rally around the flag and they, and they, they rout the, the enemy. That's the idea. That's the feeling of, of, of that Peter. Thumping his chest in James and John, I can drink the cup. The only problem with these three men is they're still back in the barracks whenever they make their war face. (laughs) And Jesus knows what they're going to do when they see the enemy. Now this may sound counterintuitive to you or to me, but you know what Jesus does for those who make the war face back in the barracks and thump their chest? He takes them closer to the battle in order to teach them. He separates them from the eight. He draws them closer to the temptation that he's going through and the temptation that they're getting ready to face. He takes them along, keeps them close to instruct them. He's already prayed that they won't fall completely. And so he takes them into live fire. So, so when he's not there, they'll, they'll know what to say. And they'll know what to do. He needs to show them that they're much weaker than they think they are. And in the process, he tells them where they need to look for strength in the future. How to, how to gain that strength. He models it for them that we'll see in prayer. He also knows what you'll do in the future. And you may not understand why you're going through the difficulty that you're going through right now. You may not understand why it's so hard at the moment You may not even understand when you pray and when you plead with the Lord for the difficulty to be to be removed, it may feel even heavier. (laughs) And you may not understand that, but God does. He may be taking you closer to the battle to prepare you for something that God knows is coming. He may pull you closer to the fire to temper you for future heat. But the blessing is He'll not let you be consumed because you're His. Look at the commands that He gives them. Look at verse 34. And He said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. Remain vigilant. Look at verse 37. He goes and prays. He comes back and He, he came and found them sleeping. They're all sleeping. But He says to Peter, Simon, human Name, name of your birth father, Simon, are you asleep? 
Could you not keep watch for one hour? In verse 38, keep watching and praying. And it's in the plural now. You all keep watching and keep praying. It's a command that He gives them. What's He saying? Strength to remain faithful will not come from their strong assertions of self-confidence. It will be in their submissive appeal in humble prayer. They need to be aware. They need to be alert to their pride and their self-confidence. And they need to be submissive to the Lord and to the circumstances in prayer. It's not their wills, but the Father's that must be done. And it's not their wills, but the Father's that will accomplish what He commands. And He even tells them and us why we need to pray in verse 38. Look, if you would, get verse 38 again. Keep watch, keep watch for one hour. Keep watching and praying. And He tells them why in verse 38. Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. That's why you need to pray, because you can fall to temptation. You can give in to temptation. You can be overwhelmed by temptation. Have you ever been sucker punched? That's what we used to call it growing up. You remember as a, as a young man, not knowing the Lord, being in a parking lot in a uh, shop a minute in Sissonville, West Virginia, talking to one of my friends, and the next thing I know, someone hits me from this side without even without even coming. I can remember being in seventh grade in football practice where I was a defensive end. Now, don't be impressed by that. I lasted one year, okay? Defensive end, I come around and the quarterback is in my sights and I don't see the guard pulling and you know what comes from there. He hits me and I go flying and I land on the ground. My breath is knocked out of me. And as a seventh grade boy, you don't cry, but I tell you, I wanted to cry. Being tempted, that's the idea. Being waylaid, being overtaken. And the reason that I got sucker punched, the reason that, that that pulling guard was able to just knock me off of my feet was because I wasn't aware of him. And so Jesus says, be aware. That's the reason that you need to pray. You need to pray to be aware of what is coming. And a lot of the reasons that you fall and that I fall is because we're not aware. We, we don't remain vigilant. You've not received full redemption yet, so we face temptation from the world, from your own flesh, and obviously from the devil. You have new desires, you have willing hearts, but your flesh remains. And if, you, if you're not aware and you yield to it, 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 it can bring powerful devastation. And don't forget what's going on here and miss the heart of God in these statements. Think of what Jesus is going through. He's going to his death. He knows that this is the greatest agony of his earthly life. And he is concerned about the disciples. He's pleading with them about the danger that's going to come on their souls. He's already told them that they will be tempted back in verse 31. And now he's reminding them of it. And he's showing them how to escape it. To be aware to be vigilant, to be watchful, and to pray. 
He doesn't say temptation won't come. Wouldn't that be great? Does a Christian temptation never come? Well, it's come, it's going to happen one day, but it's heaven. It's not earth. <laughs> he doesn't remove it so they don't have to go through with it. Oh, God, why don't you just take this trial away from me? doesn't remove the temptation. He doesn't say temptation is sin. That's what James says. He tells them it's coming. He tells them why. Because they're in the world and what to do to overcome it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 is a verse that you should know and memorize if you haven't. It tells us about temptations and that they're common. No temptation has taken you but such which is common unto man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. But the temptation will provide the way of escape. But with the temptation, He'll provide the way of escape also so that you will not be able to endure it. And you say, well, wait a minute, I fall to temptation. But if you're a Christian, you'll not be utterly lost. And you won't have to fall to that temptation if you take the Lord's escape. But that's not what I want you to hear about this verse. You know what this verse says? It says that no matter what you're going through, you don't have a raw deal. No matter what you think, you don't have a special situation. Peter, James, and John can't say to the Lord, Well, well Lord, you took us closer to the fire here. Why didn't you leave us back to, with the eight? Because all of them fall to temptation. You're not tempted in ways that others are not, so... If you feel that way, it's a temptation in and of itself. And our hearts want to believe that so we can excuse our obedience. You just don't understand my situation. Well, God does. And He says you can overcome it and He'll provide you a way of escape. And you begin, if you feel that, you begin with prayer. And He also takes them farther because of the purpose. There's the pride, and there's the purpose. He leads them to, to pray. Look at verse 37, if you will. He came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? He singles out Peter, but then he instructs all of them to keep watching and praying so that you all may not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing and the, the flesh is is weak. He singles out Peter, but he instructs all of them because he's going to use all of them in the future. All of these men will not listen to the Lord, even though Jesus is instructing them. You say, well, why would God give them a command if He already knows that they're not going to do it? it well, the answer should be obvious. God gives you all kinds of commands. It's in the book that He knows you're not going to keep. It's because the commandment is good, you're not. <laughs> It's because he loves you. He's warning you. He singles out Peter and he instructs, instructs them all because they'll be used in the future. All three of these men have a special task. They have a, a special temptation in the sense that, that they have affirmed their temptation's not unique, they, but, but they have been bold in what they said they were going to do, so the Lord takes them closer to the fire to, to pull that out of them, to show them how weak they are. He shows them what to do in the midst of that because He's going to use all three of them in a greater capacity later. He'll use all of the apostles, but He uses these three in particular. Peter's going to pre preach a Pentecost. There's a long way between the Garden of Gethsemane and Pentecost. 
There's Peter running off, trailing in the distance, the three denials of the Lord, going back to Galilee, the Lord uh, them fishing in the middle of the night, the Lord making a breakfast on the bank, and Peter knowing it's the Lord and jumping in the water and swimming to Him, and Jesus restoring Peter three times for His three denials. And all of those things are, are between this point and then when Peter boldly at Pentecost preaches Christ and calls his brethren to repent. James and John will be lead apostles in the work. Of the first part of the book of Acts, you have Peter and John. And James is a, is a lead apostle. And they're all three going to face four more temptations. So they need to be led through this, through this trial. And what they're going to learn in this one is failure. Don't think... Um, if you forsake God, it's always disqualifying. It can be. It also may be temporary. It also be maybe the way that the Lord qualifies you for His work. Have you ever looked at Abraham's life? Abraham lied many times before he became the father of faith, not to mention the whole Hagar thing. Plan B before... He trusted the Lord. Moses murdered someone before he became God's deliverer. King David was a liar and an adulterer and a murderer before he learned to be a man after God's own heart, according to the book of Acts. Peter was a coward and a denier before he boldly preached Pentecost. Paul was a blasphemer before he became a preacher to the Gentiles. Sin is horrible and it can be very scarring, but God uses people with a limp to show others we're to be mended, and you should be very thankful of that. Do you know why he can do that? Do you know how he can do that? Because your standing is based on him, and he never fell. That's the second test in the garden. Here's the Lord's mastery. Look, if you would, at verse 34, we focus on the disciples their pride, their purpose, greater purpose. He needs to work through the pride. He needs to allow them to fail because He's going to prepare them for a greater purpose. He teaches them to be vigilant and pray, and they're going to need that later. And now we'll turn to what we see our Lord going through here and how He fares. Verse 34 takes Peter, James, and John, and he took them and said, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. I think of a, of a young lady that I knew in high school when her fiancé died unexpectedly in a car wreck. And I can remember going to the funeral. And I can remember someone carrying her literally under each arm down the, down the aisle as she moaned and wailed. It wasn't fake. It was, it was a deep cry. It was, it was something that you can't... That it's, it's inexpressible. And the only way that she could, she could qualify what, what, was, what was going on in her heart was, was, to, was to moan that way. And her knees would buckle as they were taking her toward the toward the casket. Jesus' soul is grieved 
even beyond that point. And he went a little bit beyond and he fell to the ground, it says, and he began to pray. And Jesus also faced a battle in the garden and he won the battle. His temptation was, was different. His temptation was to forsake the cross. When Jesus says, let this cup pass from me, he wasn't forsaking God's plan. He was agonizing over it. In particular, being made sin. It's the only possible response a holy person could have to the thought of, of bearing sin and guilt and judgment. It's incomprehensible to him. The Lord looks upon evil. He's aware of sin. He's never touched it. He's never been defiled by it. As one theologian said, it, it's like, as, as, it's like a, a sunbeam shining on a trash heap it, is, not, is not touched by the filth that's in the trash heap, but, but it, it's, both of them are present at the same time. Sin is incomprehensible to the Lord. It's repulsive to Him. It's absolutely foreign to Him. MacArthur said he's not fighting against sinful impulses to be holy, like we would, He's fighting against holy impulses to be made sin. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 says of God, Your eyes, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil. You can't even look on wickedness. There are cherubim and seraphim in the, in the very throne room of God that, that are the guardians of the holiness of God and they have, they have multiple wings. They cover their eyes, symbolizing that even angels need to be aware of, of His blazing holiness and His glory. And Satan is tempting the Lord here to cling to His holiness, just like He did when He, was, when he tempted Him in the wilderness. I'm going to take you back to the beginning of the, of, the, of the Gospel of Mark. You remember what happens at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark? The very beginning, you have John the Baptist and he is preparing God's people for their Messiah. He's in the wilderness, he's baptizing, he's preaching, and then he's calling them to associate with his message. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What you've been looking for is here. You need to repent to prepare for it. Associate with my message. Acknowledge you need to repent, even though you're Jews and go into the baptismal waters. That's what, he's, that's what he's preaching. And you remember Jesus Christ stepping forward for that baptism. And you remember what John says, right? You need to baptize me. I don't need to baptize you. Why? Because Jesus was without sin. He doesn't need to repent. So why is he doing that? He's stepping forward as the substitute. He's associating with John's message. He steps forward as the substitute for God's people in the midst of the in the midst of the wilderness, and he's baptized. You remember what happens immediately after the baptism? The Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness, and he faces temptation, doesn't he? And Satan is there to tempt him. And he tempts him with the, with the exact same thing. All three temptations that Jesus has in the wilderness, the ones that Satan tempts Christ with, is to take what is rightfully his without the cross... He tempts him. He tempts his humanity for, to forsake God's plan and find satisfaction in bread. 
He tempts him to act in, in his deity. Throw yourself down from here. They'll worship you. He, he offers him the kingdoms of the world without the cross. That's the point. You can have satisfaction. You can have acceptance. You can, you can have the kingdoms of this world without doing what you just stepped forward in that baptism saying that you would be willing to do. You're the substitute. And here he is facing what Adam faced and Adam fell doing. And Satan is tempting him. You don't have to go to the cross. Keep your holiness, your deity. Cast yourself down. I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. You can have them without all of this. And Jesus faced the devil and stayed the course when Adam did, and you can't. And Luke says, right after that temptation, Luke 4.13, And Satan departed until an opportune time. He was defeated and he left. And you are looking at the opportune time Right in the face in Mark fourteen thirty two through forty two. Satan returns and he's trying to tempt him in the garden to forgo the cross. And so Jesus is praying to make it through. Temptation is always to forsake God's will in a matter. It's to leave what He has laid out for you in a specific situation. And failing in temptation is to calculate the trial is too hard, not worth it, or to seek another way. And Jesus models for us and the disciples the way to remain faithful. Three things that He did. He was persistent. He was earnest. He was submissive. And then He was victorious. I'll show these very quickly. Verse 39. He went again and prayed and said the same words. In verse 40, and again he came and found them sleeping. And the key word is again. Matthew notes three times he prays, showing his persistent nature. Disciples could see him. They could hear what he's saying, or else we wouldn't even have a record of it. So we know that they were listening to what Jesus said. They slept. He prayed. He remained persistent all the way to the cross, pushing toward obedience. And long before you fail to do the Father's will, you'll stop seeking the Father's will. And long before you fall into active sin, you'll become passive in your fight against it. And Jesus was persistent. You don't fall from the mountaintop. You don't just stop going to church or wake up one day and decide that you're going to reject God's Word. You accept little lies, uh, like I deserve it, or, or this is really not that bad, or it's not too hard, or God wants me to be happy, or whatever it is. And, and you stop being vigilant. Persistence is the opposite. You stop being vigilant. And you don't do what the Lord does here. He's persistent. And Satan has a lie for every temptation. And one by one, as you believe those lies, one might not pull you down, but they're like building blocks. And one by one, the gravity of those pull you down the hill unless you are persistent like the Lord. He was also earnest. Look at verse 34. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. He's earnest. His earnestness is very clear. He's in agony. 
The battle is so fierce, so great, so profound, so wrenching that even a perfect human body was almost unable to to withstand its onslaught. And you'll not overcome the pressure of temptation without intensity. Docile Christians are dead Christians. And you must be earnest in the fight because our flesh doesn't want to submit. And that's the last thing. He was submissive. Look at verse 36. Here's his prayer. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And the Bible instructs us to pray on this ground. 1 John 5:14 and this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us. And if we know that he hears us whatever we ask we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. Prayer is not just to get what you want. Prayer might be to center your heart or to turn your heart to what you what you should want. You don't have to know God's specific will to be submissive to Him. You just need to submit. And that's the way you persevere in a trial. You yield all you are. Here I am, all of me, not mine, but yours. And Jesus did that. And so He was victorious. Look, if you would, at verse 40. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. I mean, the third time, what would you say? Have you been there with the Lord before? I mean, I don't even want to ask forgiveness. What what do I say? I mean, you even told me beforehand, and I still did it. This is what the disciples are going through right here. And they didn't know what to answer him. And he came the third time and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It's enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of of sinners. It means it's over. It's enough. The temptation is finished. The answer has come. The hour is here. It's upon us. And evidence of that is he says, Behold, behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. He, Jesus was on the Mount of Olives and, and it's a high elevation. And, and if you're standing on the Mount of Olives, there's the Kidron Valley and you look to the other side, you can see the Temple Mount. You're, you're, depending on where you're at on elevation, you could be looking straight across the Temple Mount. And when you look down in that direction, it's the city of David, the, the, the Cheese Valley. It's, and, and that's where Caiaphas' house was. And so they're coming up. So Jesus is at a higher point than they are, and it's dark, it's in the middle of the night, and, and, and He says, it's enough. The hour has come. Behold, look. And He could see the torches of the Sanhedrin and the soldiers as they made their way up the Kidron. And there were several hundred people in the party. We're not told how many. But Luke 22 says, the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come against Him, 
He says, have you come with swords and clubs as you would against a robber while I was with you daily in the temple and you did not lay hands on me? The temple guard was part of this group. A Roman cohort which could have had as many as 600 soldiers. And Judas was there. And if you can imagine hearing these words, the words of Jesus, it is enough, and, and Him pointing to you, to the torches that are coming, you, you might be able to understand why the disciples ran. The emphasis in His statement is sinners. It is enough, the hour has come, behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hand of sinners. That's what made the struggle so immense. It's precisely what he was wrestling with in the garden. Holy God was going to be turned over to sinners and they were going to kill him for God and God's wrath would be poured out upon him. And yet look what Jesus does. Verse 42. Get up. Let us be going. Behold... The one who betrays me is at hand. He, hand. he steps up victoriously. Get up. Let's, let's be going. It's here. It's time. Writer said the cup is in his hand and he's not trembling. He stands, bloody sweat coursing down his exhausted face, soaking his clothes. He's bloodied, but he is unbowed and he gives the triumphant order. Get up, let's be going. And he didn't mean out the back. He meant right toward them. And that's what he does. You want to read what happens next? You can go John chapter 18. Jesus doesn't go the other way. He steps right up to the group and He asks them, who do you seek? He knows exactly who they're seeking. And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And you remember what happens in John 18? He says, I am He. And they all fell like dead men. The hundreds of them hit the dirt at the sound of His voice. And as they found a way back to their feet, he said it a second time. I'm the one you seek. He's triumphant. He's victorious. He's majestic. But the disciples? Not so. They flee for their lives. They're prayerless. They're unprepared. They do exactly what the Lord said they would do. And He obeys on their behalf so that when He comes out of the grave, the foundation on which they stand will not be the strength of their own will or your ability to fight temptation, but on Christ and Christ alone. And that is a wonderful place to stand. Don't you bow your heads?